Hello, my name is Dr Nicola Harding. I'm a criminologist here at Lancaster University and this is the second in our podcast series looking at our module Criminology 403, which we lovingly refer to as the Couch to 5K of Criminology. We do podcasts each week to reflect back on the session and the learning that we've just done in the session as a group. And it's really just to help collect our thoughts of of what we've got out of the session. Unfortunately, I am on my own today because my co-conspirator, Bethan Archer, is unwell, unfortunately. So you will have to just bear with me as I talk you through our session Now, each week, we tend to focus in on at least one criminologist in our Criminologists of the Week. These are not always people who would define themselves as criminologists, but this week's session is all about rejecting the status quo. And what we mean by that is kind of thinking about the origins of criminology, of uh, classicism and positivism, and the parts that we reject and leave behind as a product of their time and the parts that we bring forward and are useful to us now or have inspired things that are useful to us now within criminology. So our criminologist of the week, I'll start with the first one, is Cesare Bacaria. He wrote um, an essay on crimes and punishment in 1764. He is... um, one of the kind of early commenters on crime and justice and advocated for the reform of the criminal justice system. He critiqued capital punishment and torture and founded a work in uh, penology. So he really began to think about how we should deal with crime and criminals and uh, the impact that this has on society. So he said that it was better to prevent crimes than to punish them. And this should be the principal goal for all good legislation which is the art of guiding men to the greatest happiness or at least the least unhappiness possible. So he really pushed it back against the pre-Enlightenment punishments at the time. So prior to the Enlightenment, we'd had um, emotive social control. So this is where punishment was pain. So being stretched on the rack, being, you know, not only kind of the the physical aspect of pain, but also the kind of ridicule, public spectacle of being placed in the stocks uh, or had something like the skull's bridle, which is, it was a cage that was put over usually women's heads that had um, a piece of metal that would compress the tongue of the woman wearing it. She was then paraded with a collar around her neck uh, with a chain attached, so like almost like being a dog on a lead, paraded around the town square, um, and that was a punishment for gossiping. So not all punishments or tortures were, were for things that had contravened any official law, but were really about this emotive form of social control to make people behave the way you wanted them. And it was crime prevention through fear. So fear of what could happen to you if you were caught. Power and control pre-enlightenment was through this violent public spectacle. So all punishments were done uh, in the public sphere for everyone to watch so that they became a deterrent for other people. 
In the post-Enlightenment era, we went to a form of rational social social control, which is really what Bakari is starting to talk about, is that we needed to respond to this radically changing society. So we've got growth in population, in education, in uh, engineering ability, in medicine, meaning that the population is growing and changing at extremely fast rate and we needed to find forms of social control that could respond to this and would be effective the principles of post-enlightenment rational social control is that rational scientific insight and principles would guide the way with this and there was a focus on reforming criminal law This reconceptualization of justice meant that practical reforms that place law and punishment on a systematic, efficient and rational basis were important and was what was coming through. We now had a focus on due process so that it wasn't simply on a whim. Somebody didn't like that that woman was gossiping, so therefore she would be punished with this incredibly uncomfortable and humiliating um, activity of wearing the skull's bridle. But actually there would be a due process of arrest and examination by trial with punishments that weren't just thought up on a case-by-case basis, but there had to be tariffs that would be applied fairly and objectively. Other key thinkers around this time was the Baron of Montague, um, who wrote The Spirits of the Laws in, 1940, in 1748. He also attacked the severity and inhumanity within which criminals were treated at the time and said that the punishment should fit the crime and proportionality, so punishment should increase in severity in step with the seriousness of the crime. He also championed prevention over punishment. Around this time as well was Jeremy Jeremy Bentham and his utilitarianism. He said that individuals act rationally so to maximise pleasure and he said that the role of the government again was the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Punishment must be organised so as to always entail a little more, more pain than pleasure so that the offender may not hope to gain from their criminal act. But punishment should not be more any more painful than absolutely required to deter, otherwise it would unnecessarily increase the sum total of pain or unhappiness in society. This last notion recognises that criminals are citizens of society too. So punishments must be justified and not be disproportionate. Chopping someone's hand off for stealing a loaf of bread, for example, would be disproportionate this was a distinct shift in social thought where individuals possess free will to make choices that they're rational and focus on their own personal satisfaction and that there's action and behavior are predictable and controllable and can be manipulated therefore criminal justice must be organized as to make uh, the punishment of crime inevitable so we must always assume that we will be punished for any crimes that we undertake. It must be consistent, so we can't just punish one one people or one group of people and not punish others for the same activities. That it must be proportionate and that it must be swift. 
therefore in be, that becomes entwi- entwined, entwined with law is these ideas of and the principles of consistency and the principles of proportionality that we still see within the criminal justice system today. Positivism is developed out of classicism, so it it kind of it's what we moved on to next, and it's not really a theory, more an ep- epistemological position within a kind of philosophical and methodological approach to the production of knowledge. So it's not so much theories of crime, but more how we approach knowing about crime and justice in that time. Its origins are in the early 1800s and are shaped by the development of the natural sciences in the preceding preceding century. And it's a search for objective laws of human behaviour. But now we can really question, can science actually find these laws at all? When we apply positivism to the study of crime, um, criminology kind of becomes a discipline at this point. One of the leading figures is our other criminologist of the week, Cesare Lombroso. He defined criminology as a science, um, and it's the science of criminality. He also asserted that there were physiological traits that marked out born criminals. So he believed that criminals were born, not made, and wrote his thesis, The Criminal Man. He said that criminals were evolutionary throwbacks. He said the flattened nose and angular of a sugarloaf form, or angular or sugarloaf form of the skull, common to criminals and apes, combined with the hooked nose, is so often in part on criminals the aspects of birds of prey, the projection, projection of the lower part of the face and jaws. All these characteristics pointed to one conclusion. The atavistic origin of the criminal who reproduces physic, physical, psychic, and functional qualities of remote ancestors. Lombroso therefore thought that criminals were evolutionary throwbacks. The problem of this is that it leads into um, this idea that crime is pathological or abnormal and that the causes of the crime lie within the offender. He draws a distinction between offenders and non-offenders as us and them. And it's because this is held up for so long after his initial assertion because these scientific measurements uncover laws of human behaviour, or so he says. It led in, has led into research into genetic and neurochemical bases for antisocial behaviour. It discover it, it, these aim to discover the genetic markers that might predispose to such behaviour or biological risk factors. There is not a crime gene though, or a single causal factor. The challenges of a positivism are that when we look at the role of work of people like Lombroso, or we bring forward this early scientific investigation into what makes someone criminal, is that we can see that there's a biological reductionism in that we completely neglect social factors. It's deterministic, and this has ethical, moral and questionable implications with racist undertones. 
it underpins hierarchies of civilization and has led to things like eugenics and um, things like the elimination or sterilization of certain groups. If we think about uh, Nazi Germany and the way in which they had uh, gypsies, uh, Roma gypsies and travellers, uh, the uh, mentally unwell, disabled people, um, and kind of p- criminals, anyone that was seen as abnormally different, uh, where it was seen as a trait of their kind of genetics or their biology um, were then either sterilised to stop them from reproducing or killed. And this is the kind of idea, I guess, that we can almost breed out some of these criminal or antisocial characteristics. However, there has been a, a revival of the biological approach with social cognition and evolutionary psychology that's tried to explain crime. And we can see it in kind of popular culture. Within the class, we actually looked at a film, um, a 12-minute film of uh, What Makes a Murderer that was aired on Channel 4. And we looked at the different types of testing that are done now that come from this biological approach to understanding crime and its behaviour. There was brain scans, saliva samples, hand measurements and psychological assessments. And we looked at what they could tell us and what that actually means. So, for example, brain scans can show brain trauma or or impaired development of the brain. What this actually means, though, is a reduced capacity, impaired decision-making, lack of fear high levels of impulsivity, low levels of cognitive function and emotional dysregulation. High levels of testosterone found in um, murderers or people who've committed violent crimes show that the higher levels, much higher than the general population, show that there's more likely to be prone to aggression. Hand measurements show that high levels of testosterone in in utero, so at early stages of development, people who have gone on to commit murder can demonstrate that there's been alcohol use whilst their mother was pregnant with them, for example, and this can impair development. But all of these things together are risk factors rather than causal factors. We couldn't use these to predict who is going to be a murderer but rather we can maybe help understand those who have committed such crimes better to understand the support that we can give them and others to stop them from going down the path of creating such harm. By looking purely at the biological factors that can um, that Lombroso put forward and looking at the purely biological factors when we try to understand someone as a criminal, though, we are missing things like environmental factors, such as where or who, where thing, where people grew up, where the crime happened, who was around them, who is involved. It misses structures such as education or family relationships. It misses social economic status 
motive and victim, previous victimhood of themselves, which are all factors into why someone may go on to become criminal. We have to also consider people's role in society, the structures that are around them, the inequalities that they've faced and the social interactions that have potentially driven that aggressive or violent behaviour. Therefore, we can only really take a an approach that brings together both these positivist kind of science approach whilst also combining the classicism's um, kind of, I guess, understanding or concern of uh, the humanist approach to criminology. Both of these perspectives, positivism and classicism, have given have made a huge impact on the development of criminology and the potential impact on some of the studies like that of Lombroso means that we have to read them of their time but they fare as a warning for if we neglect to kind of consider our social biases if we look at the works of Lombroso what we can see is the biases towards marginalised people, such as people from uh, traveller communities, such as people of colour, um, people in marginalised populations, is Lombroso's sample was people who'd been criminalised already. And we see the human biases of basing who we think is going to be criminal, criminal based on who's been previously criminalised. The last thing that I asked students to do today was to read an article and I've left it with them before next week so that we can consider how some of the problems with Lomoroso's study, i.e. his sample of looking at the people who'd been criminalised previously to predict future criminal behaviour without considering why those people socially had been criminalised, i.e. are ingrained Um, biases against some populations in society we see that that's being replicated in now how we are utilizing uh, ai and other forms of machine learning to help us identify who's likely to be criminal and we looked at the article details the racist robots that are potentially uh, influencing new sentencing decisions where we've used ai to help identify the risk of any defendants going through the criminal justice system to help identify whether they're likely to commit crimes in the future. The problem is is that the data sets we've got are inherently dogged by society's biases, by the biases of the people the, the police that do the stop and search, the um, magistrates and the courts that have gone on to convict, and the sentences that have previously been given all build towards uh, a data set that is not objective, is not scientific, but rather reflects more on the biases in society than it does on who's likely to be a criminal in future. I'm going to draw that to a close today and I hope that you found it interesting and I hope that you it's given you some food for thought about how the origins of criminology, the classicism um, the, of the classical school of criminology 
that really asked us to think about criminals as being people that their crime should be only in proportion, their punishment should only be in proportion with their crime and that we should focus on prevention. This is going back to the early 1700s that we already started those lessons and reflect back on where we are today with how we treat criminals and the types of punishments that we use and how much we do or don't focus on prevention. The positivist school of taking this new scientific approach to the understanding of crime and its control really um, helped us lead the way of trying to get better um, at, at producing research and producing an understanding of criminal actions and criminal activity that we'd never had before. From it, whilst we may not be able to identify uh, criminals by sight, we did take things away from it, like that there are uniquely things that are uniquely identifiable uh, about us, that when we have committed a crime, such as our fingerprints, or if you look at the work of Professor Sue Black, who used to be here at Lancaster, she's an anthropologist that identified how um, the back of our hands is a, as unique to us as our fingerprints. So whilst the back of our, looking at the back of our hands isn't a predictor of whether we will become criminal or not, it is uni- uniquely identifiable in situations such as online child abuse where there may not be any voice to recognise um, or any other characteristics in the, the film of the individual perpetrating the crimes other than their hands. These advances come from the scientific approach of the positivist school all those years ago. It's just that we are able to utilise them in different ways now. So whilst we may all roll our eyes at Lombroso and say you can't identify a criminal just by looking at them, we need to remember that this work was of its time and it needs to stay of its time, but its legacy allows us to do criminological work particularly in forensics now that is really making a difference in the modern world that we have today.